So welcome to The Long View, stories of vocation and formation, a podcast where we get a chance to interview folks and hear about their stories and learn about what God is doing in their life and how God has worked in their life. And we are your hosts, Tim Baumgartner. And Jane Wassum. And we'd like to introduce you to Jill Harmon today. She is our good friend. Uh, we met her at Emmanuel in the seminary, but she is from Nebraska and she is currently the associate pastor at Fremont First United Methodist in Fremont, Nebraska. She is also an adjunct at Crichton University um, and teaches restorative justice. And she's also halfway through her um, doctorate degree in interdisciplinary leadership, also at Crichton. And um, we just think that she is an incredible person and friend and pastor, and we are excited to talk with her today. So welcome, Jill, to our podcast. Well, thank you all so much. I am so grateful to be here, and it's just, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing you're doing and and really uh, honored to be a part of it. So thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So just to kind of get things started off, um, can you just give us a brief rundown? Just tell us kind of the high points about your ministry, maybe throw in when you're in education and that kind of stuff, and just kind of share a little bit of uh, what ministry has looked like for you up to this point. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of took the long, I love that your podcast is called The Long View, because I took the long road to ministry. Yes. So this yeah. worked out really, really perfectly. Uh, so You know, I I thought about ministry when I was younger. It probably really started coming into mind when I was in high school, I would say. Um, And I went to I went to a a pretty small, uh, traditional, conservative type evangelical church in North Platte, Nebraska, where I grew up. There was probably 100 people who went to my church, little small white church in the country. Very cute. But it was a pretty conservative church worldview and theological view. So I remember one one afternoon I was uh, preaching, kind of pretending to preach mm. in the in the sanctuary one day because <laughs> my, my family was there. We would clean the church as part of our ministry and that was our month to clean. So I went behind the pulpit. It was silent in the sanctuary. I went behind the whole pulpit and I just started to, to pretend to preach. And one of the church elders came in, so very kind, uh, but he came in and he said, oh, Jill, that's really great that you have that kind of vocational, you know, that vocational uh, aspiration, but, you know, God, God tells us that women can't preach, that women aren't allowed to be in leadership in ministry. You know, you could work with children. If you want to do that, you could do children's ministry. And I didn't know, you know, I was 16. So I was like, Oh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make God mad. Like I, you know, I didn't know that I couldn't do that. So I'd sort of tabled it because I, you know, he's someone I looked up to and, you know, that was the, the, the teaching that I knew. So I tabled that for several years. Fast forward uh, to when I was on uh, or I met um, John Wassum and he <laughs> okay. was starting this I new I know that yeah. name. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I met John and he was, you know, starting this new uh uh, what was it for pastors, missionaries, and church planners, like continuing it. And he needed someone to come and do assistant work with him. And he said, do you want to come and maybe do this? You can also take seminary classes for free. And I was like, this was part of your compensation package. And I loved school. This was like years, you know, later after I graduated <laughs> with my undergrad. And he said, and I was like, yeah, that let's, let me see what that looks like. I'd love to come work with you. I'm interested in that. And so that was my first taste of seminary still thinking though, that that's not something women could do, but I was blown away when I was at Emmanuel and I saw so many women 
in yeah. leadership positions or preaching. I was like, does God know that you're doing this? Cause you're not <laughs> supposed to. Like, that's what they told me. You know, that's gonna Wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. So I just, that was a, that wasn't a really, a really enlightening experience for me, but I still, you know, still really kind of had that embedded in my heart that that wasn't something that maybe I was called to do or couldn't do, you know, that it really is hard to shake that yes. when it's ingrained in us from such a young age. Yes. And, you know, they can point to specific scriptures to show you, Oh, this is why, I mean, it's sure, really, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intense and really damaging. damaging. Right. Yep, um, that's the word I so then, I mean, I, I decided to go back in, into teaching. So I taught for, for 10 years. I taught English literature to high school mm. students, uh, and I did love that. Um, but I still just felt that pull, you know, yeah. to, toward toward ministry. So I started working for the Salvation Army, and that's when I got into restorative okay. justice work with youth and uh, at-risk youth in that kind of thing. And then uh, I, there was an opportunity to be a director of discipleship for a Methodist church, United Methodist Church. And I was like, I really think I'm supposed to be in full-time ministry. So, and at this point, I had, was halfway through uh, a manual uh, and about ready to, to graduate. I graduated with 2020, I think. So, um, anyway, I took I took the position and uh, had I really I really loved it. You know, it's uh, it's it's hard work, but it's good work. And then uh, I ultimately ended up going through the process to be a licensed local pastor uh, with the United Methodist Church. And so, and then I was promoted. I don't know if that's the word you use, promoted, given, I don't know, given the the position of opportunity, maybe that's Mm -hmm. better, opportunity to be the associate pastor. And I've been the associate pastor here since, since July. So. Okay. I remember meeting you at Emmanuel, you know, when you were first working um, with John, and that was really neat. I feel like we kind of got to know each other and bonded over a lot of different things, even before, you know, you were in seminary, and we've just crossed paths a lot since then, um, which has been really oh, so fun. much, Jane. Honestly, you were one of the people that I saw in a in a ministry position as a female, as a woman, and was just blown away with your grace and your leadership and your intelligence, and just I was like, she's supposed to do this, so why would God give her these gifts? And her and just do it so well and not supposed to do it. So that was just a big, a big model for me in, in women in ministry. So you really made an impact. I appreciate that so much. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> Why? Um, so you gave us this great story. I loved hearing that story. I don't think I'd heard that from you growing up um, in your church. And But why else? How else would you talk about why you chose ministry? Maybe that season when you were working at Emmanuel and choosing to go to seminary. Um, are there a couple of things from that season or decision-making, you know, as far as discerning, choosing to work in ministry that you could share? Yeah. I, I remember when I was at Emmanuel that year, um, there were a few students that started this ministry at the John Severe Center, which yeah. in Johnson mm-hmm. City, which is like kind of like this place where people can go rent a room when they're, you know, a little bit, when it, when they're unhoused for maybe a little bit. Uh, but they had noticed, the students had noticed that there it was just so isolated. There was no community. It was, you know, it was just a really kind of a, a difficult existence for the residents. So they thought, what if we created opportunities for community at the John Severe Center? So we started doing like movie nights and like little holiday parties. We did tutoring with the kids or uh, some Bible studies or just coffee and conversation. And I loved that. I loved 
I loved being with the kids there. I loved being with the people. I, I mean, I remember meeting, um, there was one resident in particular, her name was Helen and she, I really spent a lot of time with her and she was, oh man, she had to be older at that point. I want to say she was probably in her eighties at that point, but had lived like her whole life basically in isolation. And, she, but she had so many incredible stories about hope, you know, and I was, I loved spending time with them and it felt, it felt like ministry, but it didn't feel like ministry. It just felt like relationships. It felt like yeah. developing these incredible relationships with these people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And so I think there was like a little bit of a bug of, of maybe ministry there uh, because I didn't realize maybe ministry at the time is so much about developing sincere and authentic relationships and just caring about people. You know, I yeah. maybe looked at ministry thinking it's about preaching and it's about doing yeah. communion and it's about, you know, what I'd seen growing up, this man in a suit standing in front of me praying right. for, you know, 15 minutes and doing a, <laughs> you know, doing like a, mm -hmm. a sermon and, and that kind of thing. And that's, that's sort of what I had just thought ministry was or what it looked like. And I think, I think at Emmanuel, it really started to unfold the true crux of ministry, which is, which is just relationships and loving people, which we say that, right. But right. it's easy to say like, let's love people, you know, love God and love mm -hmm. people, but to actually get to yes. experience what it's like to love a person, you know, and have them let you love them is just so incredibly impactful and so humbling. And I, I was so grateful for those moments. And I think that's where it really started to, to cycle through me that I, I want to do this. And so how do I do this? Yeah. <laughs> and so then it started the long road, you know, of how did, how would I get there? Yeah. Okay. So I think that a, a lot of, you shared a little bit about kind of what it looks like, what ministry looks like. So uh, kind of in the midst of all that, as you sort of found yourself as a seminary student doing ministry here in downtown Johnson City, um, and as you've sort of kind of changed careers and different paths and headed in different directions, how, how would you define vocation uh, or calling for yourself? And then how has that changed over time? You shared a little bit about it, but in terms of like, what, what would you consider to be like a definition of vocation and how has that evolved? Well, I mean, I said, like I said before, it was it shifted so much from a practical vocation of, of doing something and it turned more into like an emotive vocation of, of feeling something, I think maybe is how I would look at that. And it's shifted, my, my paradigm has shifted over time by the experiences that I've had with just other people. So for example, when I worked with the, um, the Salvation Army and I, I worked with the, it's a, it's kind of like, well, that's not true. I was going to say it's kind of like the John Sevier Center, but it's not. It's it's like a community center. Uh, and it's for, it's they're always placed in areas that are more impoverished, essentially, is what that's supposed to look like. But they're state-of-the-art centers, and they've got like a gym and a pool and a teen center and all these things. Uh, and I came on as the, um, the youth, kind of a youth mentor sort of role is what I was supposed to be doing. Youth engagement manager was my title. Mm -hmm. And they came and had me, they wanted me to, they said, oh, the behavior in the center is just awful. Kids will come in and just do whatever they want to do. And they were, they were horrified with this. And I remember walking in the first day and what I saw was sure kids kind of running around and there was a lot of things going on, but I also saw such a disconnect of relationship. You know, I mean, the kids would walk in the center and the adults would just immediately cringe up and turn away and want nothing to do with them. And I was like, well, of course these kids are going to act yeah. out. They a, want your attention. B they want at least something from you relationally. And right now all they're getting is just disdain, you know? And so uh, 
being able to to shift the paradigm of vocation from, okay, like that is sort of this example of they're just doing something, they want to control it, they want it to look like this in a box. And I think we can think about ministry in that way. Oh, these are the steps you do. You go to seminary, you mm-hmm. become a pastor, you do, you know, these are kind of the steps of what you do. But it's so much more about spending the time and changing, changing your heart, you know, and changing minds and, um, and really uh, digging deep into people's stories and seeing how, you know, you can maybe fit there, or you don't fit there, or, you know, it's just for a, a little bit of a season, but it's kind of like a, a little dance, I think, with the vocation of ministry. So I saw that when I was at the, at the Croc Center specifically. I don't know if that answered your question, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and maybe like now, as you kind of have maybe a fuller expression of what vocation looks like for you, and you've incorporated teaching into that. So how does that sort of fit into this overall picture of who you fit Jill as a minister? How does that fit in to your vocation as well? Yeah, you know, I think I spent so much time in the classroom that teaching is part of part of my heart. And I think I do have a, a teacher's heart uh, in that. And because so, some of my favorite moments in ministry is when I get to uh, sit down with people and we get to, I don't know, delve into scripture together, but uh, not necessarily like a formal Bible study. It's going to yeah. be, let's talk about this. And how do you, you know, how does this resonate with you? I, I think, especially when I first left seminary, uh, the fir- maybe the first time. <laughs> and uh, I remember, it, who was it? Oh, someone, Dr. Jones or someone said the most dangerous person is uh, a first year seminarian, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I was like a first year seminary because we have a little bit of knowledge to be a little dangerous. But, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I had to have all these answers and well, I've got to sit down and I've got to know, I've got to know this about scripture and I've got to tell them this about scripture because if they don't know this, then what's going to happen? And then I, I remember sitting and thinking, yeah, what would happen if they don't know that? about scripture? What if instead this was something that moved them and brought them nearer and, and closer to Jesus, which is what scripture is about and which is what ministry is about, is about showing the countenance and character of, of Jesus and letting people know and showing people how much they're loved, you know, by, by Jesus, by God, right? Through maybe our actions and what we can do, right? To show them or just sitting with someone and, and illuminating the love out of scripture. And so I think teaching fits in there in the sense where it's about, it's about illuminating love. <laughs> it's about illuminating relationships and, and drawing people closer um, so that they know how cherished they are. I love how you talk about all of that, um, the way that you talk about it. And I think it's kind of in a more, a more full way I love how you talk about that the practical is important, but it's more than that. Um, and so I really appreciate the way you talk about that and want to kind of ask you about maybe some doubts that you've had. So we'll get to hopes because uh, those are important. Maybe uh, they're, well, they are important. I mean, mm-hmm. um, hopes and doubts, we have them all. And I also love how you talk about authenticity as being important. And so if you could just share a little bit about maybe some doubts you've had in ministry and maybe some struggles in discernment, uh, if you can share with us some of those and then we'll get to hopes as well. Oh, I love that question. I, I honestly just talked about this yesterday with my confirmation kids. <laughs> so that's so perfect. Yeah. They're talking about, you know, it's a, if you're looking at the lectionary, people are talking about doubting, doubting Thomas, mm-hmm. right? Poor guy gets a really bad rap. Uh, when really he just was asking the questions nobody else was asking, right? But yeah. anyways, uh, yeah, I think I think doubts are, I fight doubts 
daily, I would say. I don't know if everybody feels that way. I think a lot of people do, though, if we sit down and, and really chat about those things. I think doubts for me is gosh, so much of an imposter syndrome, uh, because I still do have that, that women can't do this so deeply embedded, you know, yep, <laughs> in I know. me. Yeah, it's hard to override. <laughs> it is hard to fight. It really is. And that sounds so, uh, it sounds silly, but it, it's not because it really has just been so ingrained in the fabric, especially where I'm located in the Midwest. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I do, I do still fight that that kind of stereotype where yes, you are doing this and we appreciate that women are up there, but yet they'll still call in and want to talk to the male pastor, you know? Yeah. As well Uh, as even referencing speaking, you know, I mean, like mm. you said, it's uh, when you still get kind of referred to or asked, like, are you speaking instead of preaching or things like that? You know, it's hard for it not to be a daily language is subtle, but right. It makes it, but piercing, (laughs) subtle, but piercing. It really is. And the funny thing I think I find from this is that I, the most amount of doubts that I have maybe are spurred from conversations with other pastors, Mm. not parishioners. It's other pastors who will call in and say, I want to talk to the male pastor or Mm. even other female pastors. Gosh, man, ladies, we let's support one another. I think we still have this competition ingrained in us somehow that if we don't rise to the top as like the best female pastor or something, you know, then we're, we cancel each other out. Then it won't count. There can only be one of us somehow, you know, and that's just not true. But I think, I think we still have this little kind of this tide underneath us that, you know, that's still alive in our culture today, Mm -hmm. even though we'd love to say that we're progressive and we've moved past it. It's, it's very much so felt, I think by, by many female pastors and maybe I'm wrong about that, but, um, I I don't think so. (laughs) Probably safe assumption. (laughs) (laughs) that's just it's very much so alive um and even just having conversations with uh just other male postures you know like uh, my senior pastor i think is great and really supportive there's still moments where i don't know it's he's still it's still i'm still sort of treated like an assistant rather than like i'm the assistant to go do this and hey jill go do that and i don't think he means to do it and we've talked about it he's i don't mean to do that call me out on that when i do it you know um, but it's just sort of ingrained, you know, like, Hey, you're the woman go do this yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing. I find that as well where, you know, people in my church that I think they are very supportive, like you talk about and affirming, but yet it does kind of come out in those very practical ways, like you're saying, which I think just is, uh, you know, it's, it's how it's been done for so long. It's how they've seen it for so long. Um, so I think it's really important work, though, to be able to recognize those and, like you said, call them out and try to figure out ways to still shift some of those. Because a lot of the churches and places that we still are in, even if we are women pastors, even if we are supported, uh, there still are things that are, are not treating those equally or um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, we all kind of have uh, this implicit bias that we grow up with. And, and so for me, you know, it was very similar. Like I grew up in a church, only guys uh, were able to do anything really up front other than sing. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, when I was um, an elder, ordained as an elder at our church here uh, in Johnson City, and, and realizing that behind me, there were four women that were kind of laying hands on me that were elders and thinking, wow, I remember being a kid, like a teenager and being able to serve communion but these women that I had learned from weren't even allowed to do that. And it was so, um, 
just the, the stark contrast, you know? And so uh, for those that have grown up in sort of the conservative church, whether that's, you know, in the Midwest or in the, in the South primarily, um, that's just what we grew up with. And so mm-hmm. it's hard to overcome, uh, you know, even as a guy, to overcome those things, even though I know, yeah, I completely agree 100% that women and men both have and should be preaching and, and in ministry and uh, as elders in our churches, um, but it's hard. Uh, to overcome yeah. some of that. I think less so maybe in the Methodist church. It's been around a lot more, uh, women in ministry more, but uh, in Christian churches, it's it's harder to find. I think it's ingrained in the fabric of all churches. Even yeah. even the, yeah. Jane, maybe you can speak yeah. to this. Like the United mm-hmm. Methodist Church, I think has kind of fancied themselves really progressive and they are. They have placed women in leadership positions. I mean, John Wesley did, right? I mean, clear back mm-hmm. when this sort of came to came to fruition or was founded. Uh, but there is still this, it's so funny and I don't mean to harp on it, but I, Jane, do you feel that it's still like just yes. this implicit, yeah. like yeah. you mentioned and this implicit bias, it's just bubbling under the surface mm-hmm. that where you're like, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if I can do, like, I can't do some of the things that my senior pastor yes. can do. Like, yeah. I, or I couldn't say, I couldn't say some of the things he said and have it as well received. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like, so strange, so. Yeah, I feel like I would say that it is um, treated differently. Yes, when a female, a woman is in even the same position or if they're in the same kind of circumstances that a male would be in, uh, there just is this tendency, I feel like it's convenient almost, (laughs) or if you can get away with um, treating it differently, they will, basically, um, I think. So I think it is still there uh more than you know even when there's affirmation even when there's support in terms of authority and in terms of seeing it equally treating it equally uh because there's also this like you said when it's ingrained and you grow up with this idea of women being maybe more quiet or humble or these passive or not taking that authority not teaching you know, if they haven't heard them in the pulpit, all of those kind of things, then it just lends itself to being able to treat it a little bit differently. And then, yes, and I I do, like, and we're supposed to be Enneagram twos, right? And we're just not all of us, so. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, For my Enneagram fans out there, but I do think I have found um, in this role, because I've I've been at this church now for for three years, since 2019, I started as the director of discipleship and now had the opportunity to become the associate pastor. I'm going to bring it back to relationships, though. I think what I have found is that those implicit biases, you know, start to melt away the, the deeper I'm able to delve deeply into relationships with people. And that's Mm -hmm. been, that's been a really interesting thing for me to see, because I think, I think I feared, I think that I did have this fear, talk about doubt, right? This Mm -hmm. like doubt and this fear that was just ingrained in me that, oh, this will, I'll never be accepted, you know? Um, But the, the more I'm able to just sit one-on-one with people or just, sit with them in their, their moments when yes, they're crying in the ashes or the moments when they're celebrating the most. I mean, those, those incredible moments, right? Like I had at the John Severe center with, with the people there with Helen or whoever, right. And, and having those moments here, I have seen a shift of, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a female in front of them anymore. I'm just, I'm just, you know, their, their friend, or, you know, I'm someone 
that gets to love them in, in a way that's really unique and special. And so I have seen a shift there too. And I think that's important, you know, for, for us to realize, and I think it's the same for male and female pastors. Right, it doesn't right. matter. Sure. And maybe that just what, what it took to open my eyes. I don't know. And I can readily admit that maybe I was, it was my fear that was holding me back from some of the, some of those moments, but I think to keep pushing forward mm-hmm. in, in this, you know, kind of, territory of female pastors and maybe more more and more of those cropping up it's it is based on relationships Mm -hmm. and um being able to have that opportunity and that time and throwing away my doubts and fears that maybe i'm not good enough because i'm a female and just sitting down in front of someone and saying hey you know how are you i love you what's going on you know or you know, let's just talk about your job or what happened yesterday or, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in like, you know, I haven't seen you in forever and just get yeah. really excited. You know, those moments have been, have taught me more yeah. about what is more likely to lean into to pastorship and to dispel the doubts. Yeah. I think guys struggle with doubt too. So you're not alone <laughs> there either. <laughs> Woo! Solidarity. We're know, humans, right? right? Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> Certainly the uh, imposter syndrome is, is large. So as you overcome some of those doubts then and look ahead to uh, what some hopes you might have for, for your ministry or just in general for just your hopes for the church, um, what are some of those things that kind of keep you going, give you something to look forward to? Yeah, well, I mentioned before that I teach uh, courses in restorative justice yeah. at Creighton and restorative justice for those that maybe are, what is that, is uh, essentially just a, a non-punitive approach to to behavior, essentially. So, in, and that could be in schools with adolescents and community centers, or it could be in the church with people when we disagree. You know, there's generally, I mean, the approach is, okay, let's make a decision. It's punitive in some way, meaning like, the pastor is going to make the decision or the leadership council is going to make the decision and that's it. And we walk away and then there's a lot of really hurt people. Yeah. Uh, and I think about that specifically because the church that I serve in had a really big split um, and a really just painful season for them um, based around uh, some leadership decisions and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and they still, they still struggle with it. And so, uh, and I watch, I watch the hurt kind of surface, you know, and the thing about, pain, you know, and about um, unacknowledged pain, especially Uh, as human beings, we want our pain to be acknowledged uh, and we don't want to hold on to it. We don't, but we do. And even if it happened 30 years prior, I've seen people stand in front of each other and have the same kind of guttural, painful anger reaction to one another as if it happened yesterday, you know? And so a, a restorative justice approach is about owning behavior, right? Yes, I did this. Yes, I said this. And that's it. Full stop. I didn't, not that, yes, I did this, but, (laughs) or yes, I did this. And all of these reasons, yes, there are reasons and we'll get to that. Right. But let's just own the behavior. Yes, I did this, you know, and understand that. And it's okay to sit there and sit with that. You know, I think we see that in scripture, right. When Jesus talks to the woman at at the well, this Samaritan woman, I love her. I've got like a a sculpture of her, a little sculpture of her in my office. She's like my favorite character in the Bible, but Mm. you know, he was, I mean, Jesus was like, yes, you did this. I mean, it's right. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, you're not with your husband now. Right. And there's like all these others. Yes, you did this. And she was like, yeah, I did. But there wasn't judgment and un, you know, this awful thing that, that she couldn't reenter or be accepted after that. And that's restorative justice is mm-hmm. yes, you did this, but you're not a bad person. Mm-hmm. What you did might've been bad. And that's, a, you know, let's admit that because sure. right? we have bad actions because we're human beings. Right. And we miss the mark, right. We sin, we miss the mark. You know, but that doesn't mean we're innately a bad person and that we're not reintroduced to 
um, the, the loving society that we deserve to be in. And I think a lot of times when people make mistakes or they make bad decisions or they sin or whatever you want to call it, then they, they fear that they're judged and shamed and then they're not welcome back into society. Like we see the woman, right. Going to the well way later than everybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. we do that metaphorically in our lives. Well, I don't want to go back to that, that place, you know, or Mm -hmm. I'm not welcome back there, you know? So what if it looks like Yes, we can admit that, but we can come together in a restorative way, acknowledge our pains, you know, in a maybe a mediated conversation or whatever it needs to be. We call them restorative justice circles or peace circles, uh, if you really want to get lingo-y about it. But really, it's just coming together uh, and being able to share that and and understanding that we, as human beings, we all have dignity, right? The inherent yeah. worth for just and value of being a human being just because we're alive, right? And that uh, understanding the humanity in one another. And that's where we get to, yes, I did this, but you know, here's, here's this side of the story that's driven me. It's this pain. It's this, you know, it's this trauma, it's this whatever. And so we start to see each other as human beings. And then it's about, you know, relationship development again. So that, all that to be said, uh, I, I don't think we do this enough in society. I don't think we do this enough in the church. I think it, we make the easy answer and we want to just make the decision with the leadership board mm-hmm. or the pastor or whatever, and just yeah. shove it out. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're harming so many people in so many ways, you know? Um, and I, that, that breaks my heart in millions of pieces. And so uh, I'm really passionate about restorative justice and uh, looking to that. And in, uh, in right now in the United Methodist Church, uh, but also at Creighton, I, I do. I just uh, just received word. I have the opportunity to uh, create a, a minor at Creighton in restorative Very justice. Nice. So I get to, yeah, I'm so excited. We're sitting That's down really this cool. week yeah. and we're going to start Congrats. creating some curriculum. Yeah, thank you. We're just I'm really excited about that. Uh, and it's been such a it's been so well received by students. And they're I mean, what's different? People want Right. Yeah, it's right. different. It's, it's you know, it's loving. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, when we talk about hope and what I see for the future, uh, I'm really hoping to embrace that kind of hope, the restorative piece that we're missing instead of that that natural tendency to look toward the punitive as human beings, as, as justice. We think justice is this hard, right. you know, almighty, yeah. wrathful thing when it's really about love and it's really about relationships and it's really about peace. Yeah, that's really good and important work. So thank you for doing it and being, you know, using your gifts in that way. Um, It's really beautiful to watch. Um, Have another question for you. Curious about decision making in your life and just what your approach is, you know, if you think about it right now, if there are decisions in front of you or, you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is just is discernment in our lives and decision making uh, as we follow God, seek to follow God in our lives. So how do you approach decision making if there are things in your life right now or um, if you feel you need to discern something in your life? <laughs> well, first, you know, I drink a ton of coffee or freak out. Or, I mean, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it depends on the. I think it depends on the situation. Eat an entire bag of gummy worms. Yeah. Really, it depends those are, on the those situation. are very good. You know, <laughs> they're helpful. They are helpful. really <laughs> helpful. I think so. You know, just get your get your thing of choice and just go to town. You know, is what I think. First of all, coffee and gummy uh, worms. Actually, yes. yeah, my kids a- uh, recently just ate the rest of a huge bag of gummy worms. Uh, so Jealous. I think they, uh, they probably agree with you on that. <laughs> great. Well, if they could just let me know when they get another one and yeah. if I could come over, I would gladly have a gummy worm party Perfect. with them. That yeah. sounds brilliant. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I do. Yes. Discernment is so important. I, th- I do take some time, uh, depending on, you know, whatever the decision, actually, it doesn't matter if it's a decision that's, you know, maybe take a little bit more time. Uh, maybe the length of time that I'm going to ruminate on it will, yeah. will uh, make a difference, but I do take time to say, okay, let me look at it from all angles. You know, there's this angle, this could, you know, what's the outcome here? What's the outcome there? Uh, and, and it's about being honest with myself. You know, I've got to be really honest with myself about how I'm going to react to something. Um, and I've got to be honest with myself about my current, you know, state, like, how am I feeling right now? Because that's gonna, I'm going to react differently depending on that. You know, is there a lot of stress in my life? Is there, you know, this, so just taking the time to be honest, uh, and thinking about that journaling about it. I'm a big journaler. So, uh, I write things down that's helpful for me. Um, and so I'll write those down and kind of look at that direction. Um, and, and then, you know, pray, of course, you know, spending time in, in prayer and, um, and, and looking to God, not necessarily for like that genie answer, right? Like, God, tell me what to do. Uh, it's, it's more of like a, a beautiful way to, to work that out with the spirit, you know, and to, to be able to find a peace, I think, um, in those moments. But then I also think we're, we're to look to, you know, wise counsel. So I always seek wise counsel depending on what that, you know, who, who maybe has a experience in that area. I can give them, I've got, I'm really, really fortunate to have friends uh, that I can, you know, call up and say, Hey, I'm kind of on the cusp or the precipice of these two, these two directions. You know, what, what do you think you've been here before, or, you know, me pretty well. So what do you think here? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and whether that's a friend or my husband or, you know, whatever that looks like. So seeking that wise counsel, um, and um, spending time with that too. I always take that into account when I'm thinking about uh, decision-making as well. And then um, ultimately you make the decision and you go forward. I think, I do think that in life we could take two different directions and you could take either direction and you're going to wind back up somewhere else anyway. You know, it'd probably be okay. I mean, depending on the severity of the decision, right. But just knowing you made the decision and moving forward confidently with it, I think is also really important. Not looking back, right? Like the, what's that old, what's that, um, that Greek tragedy, right? Where Orpheus is like trying to get out of, like get away from Hades, right? Oh, and yes. so he, the only thing he can't do is look back, mm-hmm. you know? And if he looks back, then was it Eurydice or something? She, she disappears forever in that Greek tragedy. Um, and I think we do that with decision-making too. If we look back, it's like, oh, that's, don't do that. You know, like yeah. don't, don't dwell, like look forward, go move forward confidently. Cause you can do this, you know? Yeah. Cause our fear is like, once you make a decision, then that, then you've chosen not to go down that other path or to follow that other direction. And there's that, you know, that buyer's remorse sense of re- regret that, well, what if, right. and, and it's hard to not do that. We feel like, well, you know, was this the wrong, did I make the wrong decision? And right. I, I think so often it's, well, you have like two good choices. It's not necessarily right. that there's a right or a wrong one. It's mm-hmm. just, how do you move forward with the one that you did choose? Yeah. So right. being confident in and that helps. Be confident. Walk forward. What is Wolf, Wolf, uh, Wolf, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yes. Wolf is really his nickname. So we're going with that. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a.k.a. Wolf, says move forward right confidently in the direction of your dreams, which is sort of out of context, but it's still a pretty good quote. So. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. Mm-hmm. So speaking of moving forward confidently, how um, what kind of words of encouragement do you have for other folks who might be listening in and uh, want to know, like, how do I stay open to God's kind of leading and direction in my life? Uh, what kind of encouragement might you have for others in that situation? Uh, maybe it's cliche, but I would, I would want to say that 
your experiences, who you are and how you're made, of course, but your experiences especially have really crafted who you are. And those experiences are going to help somebody else. And it doesn't doesn't matter, you know, what they were. They're good or bad. You know, we all we're human beings and we have a, a collection of, of good and bad experiences in our life. But but being able to 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 use those experiences to to draw people to Jesus, you know, showing showing them, showing others the character and the countenance and the love and the grace of, of Jesus Christ because of who you are. People are going to be drawn in because of you. You know, and that's that's so remarkable. You're here specifically, right? Um, around those people in those moments, um, and and use that in, in the best way to develop those relationships to to draw people to Jesus Christ, because I think that's what we're called to as disciples. Uh, we're all called to be disciples. It says go, right? But really, really what that means is bring people to me, you know, don't hurt them. <laughs> don't, don't judge them. Don't, you know, chastise them. Don't push them away, you know, bring them to me by, by who you are and what you do and with your gifts and graces uh, and, and whoever might be listening to this, you have the gifts and graces for the people in your life to bring people to Jesus Christ. That's well, wonderful. that is beautiful, and I just want to say, we want to say thank you for living that and for being that, um, because that you are are an example of that, and you do um, just show that with your life and your decisions and your actions and just the way um, that you are, so we want to say thank you for that, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, and we probably should have asked you. I mean, I didn't realize you had uh, you, you taught literature. We should have asked yeah. you to bring a poem. But, yeah. Um, but we have one that we usually kind of close out with a prayer or with a poem. But we've got one from uh, from Mother Teresa um, that we'd like to share uh, to kind of close out our time together. Yeah, and we I um, actually thought of you when we read this this, uh, and so it's inspired by you, our picking, our choosing of this one today. Mm-hmm. So this is by Mother Teresa, and it is called Do It Anyway. So people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous, but be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and your God. It was never between you and them anyway. Amen. Amen. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. What an honor in that. Yes, that's such a beautiful, beautiful poem. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Jill, for joining us uh, on this episode of The Long View. Yes, it's been really great to talk to you. Um, we always you. enjoy talking to you. Oh, such an honor, like I said, and it's great. What a what a great way to start my start my day. I don't know when you're listening to this, but it's morning for us right now, and I get to start my day with Tim and Jane, which is just honestly the best. So thank you. <laughs> I know it's going to be a great week. 